Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next real packed, feature-rich, somewhat expositional episode of Honorverse Today, the one and only Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. And joined here tonight are your hosts, Raul Weber, myself, J.P. Harvey, and Jim Airwood. How are you gentlemen tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. Fantastic. Ready for some naval warfare. (laughs) Yeah. We're actually going to get some rather different aspects of naval warfare. A lot of strong historical roots, which means it's something I'm sure a person who's got the interest in uh, military history that you do, JP, is really going to like. But it's like, wow, it's book six already. Can you believe that? I feel like we're we could say we're about halfway through the original series, but I guess that's true. We are halfway through next time, but we are, but yet the two spin-off our sidecar series especially you can't call them non-essential because they directly flow with the main story. And then the anthologies that come in intermittently have some really pertinent information as well. They, they actually introduce some main characters and some main plot elements that we won't see expanded for quite some time. The Tree Cat series in particular it, you know, is... JP's a, just waiting for that one. Huh? Mm. <laughs> the Tree Cat series. JP is just... He, he can't hardly stand it. He's waiting so anxiously. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to talk about you and Tree Cat someday, JP, Okay. Hey, my mouth is watering. I'm uh, for the tree cats. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, we, like you said, we're about halfway through, and then after that book, we are going to start getting into some of those uh, subdivisions. In particular, we'll start with some of the short stories. But that's in the future. That's all in the future. Tonight, we're seeing honor rehabilitated, uh, as they like to call it. And <laughs> back in a manticore uniform in Honor Among en- Enemies. And folks, I'm going to warn you. I'm sorry, guys. I can't resist this slump one. This will probably be our silliest episode of the entire run. And Jim, I- I- I'll let your summary explain why. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no pressure. From, yeah, really. From the back of the book, for Captain Harrington... It's sometimes hard to know who the enemy really is, despite political foes, professional jealousies, and the scandal which drove her into exile. She has been offered a chance to reclaim her career as an officer of the Royal Manticoran Navy. But there is a catch. She must assume command of a squadron of jury-rigged armed merchantmen with crew drawn from the dregs of the service and somehow stop the pirates who have taken advantage of the Havenite War to plunder the Star Kingdom's commerce. That would be hard enough, 
But some of the pirates aren't exactly what they seem, and neither are some of her friends, for Honor has been carefully chosen for her mission by two implacable and powerful enemies. The way they see it, either she stops the raiders, or the raiders kill her. And either way, they win. Uh-huh. Well, there it is. Yeah, well, okay, you, you, you didn't quite explain. One of the references for people from Silesia, which is the pr- primary, which is the primary location for this particular story, what, what, somewhat derogatory, in, in the same way that they call Manticorns Mantis, Havenites, mm. People Republic peeps, uh, the Silesians are referred to as Sillies. Oh, we'll see. And that wasn't on the back of the book. No. My bad. <laughs> so, so someone didn't do their homework. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. We still like you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I, oh, jeez. Huh? I stepped in that one, didn't <laughs> I? Yep. And I think on that happy note, before you can come up with some snappy repartee, we will turn this over to JP for some special notes. All right. Um, Give us some Storyline-wise or timeline-wise, this story happens eight years after the events that unfolded in the book on Basilisk Station. Uh, Therefore, if you wanted to put this in the post-diaspora timeline, we are approximately in 1909. Honor Among Enemies is 544 pages. It was published by Ban in June 1996. And so far, and I say that, you know, with pretty good certainty, we're going to see more. Uh, But so far, this has been Weber's heftiest book in the series. Oh, this is far from the heftiest. Yeah, I figured there was going to be some some more coming. Uh, So just short of 100 pages longer than any of the others that we've read yet. Page counts for those that want to know what they've been slogging through, especially if you're doing uh, ebooks that are measuring in percent of the book or audio books and hours. Uh, page counts, book one is 458 pages. So right out of the chute, that's a hefty book. Book two was 422. Book three was 376. Book four is 416. Book five was 443. And now we have this book, book six, at 544. So, you know, these I'm are, going to warn you some of the later these are big books, books with big story in them. What's some that? of these later books are going to be clocking in at eight and nine hundred pages plus. All right. I'm getting myself ready. Mm-hmm. So every now and then I'll uh, I'll think to tie the title of the book to, to what's happening in the book, especially if it's not abundantly obvious. I was looking for it in this book because the title didn't lend itself to exactly what would be going on, although you might imagine and imagine correctly. But late in this book, uh, in in chapter 37 specifically, we, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I got ahead of myself there, but I'll I'll finish that thought. The purpose for this book or the title comes, uh, a hint of it comes in the first half, and then it is solidly driven home in a slightly different context very late in the novel. The enemies that are referenced that there might be honor among are primarily the Manticorans and the Peeps. And we know, obviously, that that those two are not friends. They're at war. But also, uh, honor and our good friend, Mr. Hauptman. 
And the stage is set for some honor among those two enemies, if we can call them enemies early on. And then um, there's a bigger, a much bigger scene that happens later in the book. Chapter 37, I brought that up. We A little side nugget, a little just cool data point. We learned that Honor is reading one of Forrester's Horatio Hornblower novels. Uh, we don't know which one, or I couldn't tell from the context of the book. I'm sure uh, somebody out there has either figured it out or has done some really good speculation on it. But it was really uh, a cool confirmation when she says that she identifies with the hero and likes his initials. His initials. So mm-hmm. I'll uh, I'll say that that was a cool cameo for Horatio Hornblower in um, in Weber's book here. Related to the first book in the series, uh, you'll remember Honor Harrington fights an enemy Q ship. Uh, for those that weren't familiar with what those were or how they're used, that was probably a a, a surprise. Um, as we're watching what looks really like a traditional Navy problem, and suddenly there's this odd armed merchant ship with a lot of horsepower. In this novel, uh, as you heard from the back of the book, Honor leads a squadron of uh, Q-ships to fight against pirates who are preying on Manticoran merchant vessels in areas that the uh, Navy can't fully patrol due to the commitments of the war that they're in with the People's Republic of Haven. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I have more on Q-ships later. But uh, that, that's kind of those are kind of the special notes. And with that, I'll turn it over to uh, my colleagues here to talk about in- overall impressions. And Jim, I don't know if you want to start or uh, Raul. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. So I thought this was, yeah, another great Honor Harrington story. There is a lot in the book. Uh, I enjoyed how several story elements are all brought together into one cohesive story. Uh, we got a lot of characters in this tale that I that I did care about, only to have them all snuffed out at the end. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, you know, he kind of uh, takes after one, Joe Straczynski in that respect. Oh, it, yeah. I, I mean, wow. It was sad. Uh, this one was full of triumph along the way, and a deep sense of sadness at the end as the carefully developed characters, and I mean these characters were very carefully developed in order to so that we cared cared about them. Oh, Wolcott in particular hurt. Yeah. And their lives were brought to an abrupt end. But once again, there was a heavy amount of hearing from the unnamed character I call Murray the Explainer. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh the first third of the book was loaded with exposition and an overabundance of info dump. And not enough show. I mean, just it's just tell, tell, tell. Okay. Uh, I've gotten to where I expect this in these books and wade through the extremely long story setup to get to the action I know will eventually arrive. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's and where I'm did. at. Yeah, it, oh, it finally did. And then in some ways, that's one of Weber's characteristics, at least with the mainline series. There is a lot of world... In particular, it's world building. He's doing a whole lot of world building and developing cultures and civilizations. And usually there's a point to it coming Mm -hmm. into the future, as you've already seen so far. Yeah. I just get really numb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like something happens like, oh, my God, something happened. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
Well, whoever whoever would like to go up next, it's a toss-up. I'll jump in there. Go for it. Um, so we see our same heroes, certainly our same hero in honor, with with some new ones. I don't want to diminish the cast list either because it's, it's as giant as it ever was, and there were some new folks in here. Um, but we do get to see a different type of naval mission, and I alluded to that, as you did, Jim, in the reference to Q-ships. Uh, I thought, when it was all said and done, what an adventure, and not without some significant losses. And I... Uh, I, it sounds like you, Jim, was surprised at the number of non-red shirts that got, uh, that got done away with. But Mm -hmm. to me, I thought that was Weber doing a very good job of attaching you to somebody, uh, somebody's uh, plural and then losing them in the fight. And it was a good way I thought to communicate the ugliness of war. Uh, also related to, to our friend Murray. Uh, you'll remember my comments in the last book about the volume of backstory or side story or exposition, whatever you want to call it, um, that Weber seemed to be trying to pack in. And I thought he might be starting to realize just how much story there was to tell, but still trying to cram it all into his original plan of five to eight books. For me, and I could be dead wrong on this, uh, this book confirmed that thought in my mind. This novel was noticeably longer, again, like 100 pages longer, and had more exposition in it. I don't know if that's really true, but it felt like more, you know, maybe by volume because the book was bigger. Um, It bogged me down a little bit in the first half, but then there was redemption. And the (laughs) stage setting stopped. The actual, what I'll call the actual story began. That's probably not really fair way to describe it because he is world building. Um, not that the stage setting was bad. It just felt like a lot. It felt like more than the last book. That said, this book's ending was tremendous. I think one of two things will happen now um, in the context of what Weber was wrestling with as an author. He's either going to throttle back on the exposition and accept that the series is going to uh, go longer. It's taken on a life of its own. Um, he'll embrace the realization that the story isn't going to end in five to eight novels and maybe he'll return to slightly shorter books in general, or it'll hit him just how big this universe is that he's creating. His imagination's going to run wild, and we'll end up with even longer novels. And I'm not sure that either of those is bad, but let's see where it goes. I have no problem with uh, long novels. I just hope, I do hope that the amount of exposition that we're seeing kind of gets pulled back a little bit per novel. Uh, so that there's not a risk of it overwhelming the the story once we get to it. Raul, there, there will be a point are, where you were the last man standing, sir. Yep there there will be a point out to say that you, both of your directions are in a way correct. There will be some pulling back of exposition, but when you start exp- when he starts exploring the other instruments of power, you start to get in to some of the political wrangling, the economic wrangling, the information wrangling, which could very well come off as exposition. Yeah. Um, if you're, if you're anticipating high action throughout, uh, especially when you get into those other instruments of power, you're not going to see it, you know, as much, it's still going to be there, but it's going yeah. to be, oh, that's okay. It's going to be spread apart the other. Some people I don't think I was, quite understand that. I think I, last the last book 
I'll just throw my comments in, into favoring some a little complaining on my part. I'm not complaining this time. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of just observing what he he's doing. Now I'm intrigued, and I, I almost wish there was a way to have a side notes in the in the novel that where where Weber goes, oh oh man, this is gonna be a dozen <laughs> books. And and you see something change in the story as he realizes I have all the time that I need to tell this story. But I like what he's doing. I appreciated the exposition. Oh gosh, an author's one. commentary uh, like they do on DVDs. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? That would be and totally he, cool. He, if he if he heard us talking about it too, he'd probably go like this. That JP guy has no idea what was going through my head. Here's what was going <laughs> through my head. But that that would be so cool to kind of hear yeah. how he wrestled with his original plan. And I, I'm going to have to send four, an email to Bain and books. see if we can't get him on to talk about it sometime. I, I know he tends we to We ever be... pull that off? We need Folks, you're listening to this, it's not beyond us to ask that question of the author. Hey, nope. would, you, would you come on? So if you have things you would want us to ask him, uh, it, it's never too early to start launching those at us, and we'll collect all that stuff up. And if we're ever so fortunate to get Mr. Weber on the podcast, yeah, um, we'll we'll queue up a good set and, of questions. And we'll slot it. In, we'll we'll slot it in uh, as a special. Yeah. Anyway, my thoughts and impressions. Uh, yeah, for, first of all, it. yep. I don't know why, but this is always my least favorite book when I've on the rereads until I reread it, and then I remember just why I do love it after all. I believe I was the last book, uh, Flag in Exile, where I was talking about we had an honor in transition. This is the first book yes. where we see the new, what I call the new honor, uh, the one who's had an additional three years of maturing, both as an admiral and as a head of state. This is also, as you guys have said, what, the first of the books where we really start to get into that massive tome range that takes over the second half of the series. Part of that is in the case, and I think this connects into some of what JP's been saying. Part of it's a lot of the uh, world building that's going on. He spends a lot of time developing Silesia, but actually the exposition on the Andamani Empire in a lot of ways is going to prove even more important. I can't help it. I like the Andaman. We've got a lot of character development, as uh, Jim said. Interestingly... Not so much character development in honor this time, though. We're, we're seeing, like I said, we're seeing that new honor. Uh, you, you look at how she interacts with uh, people, the people that she's interacting with, and it's, it, it, it's new, but, and I'll get to this in some of the characters, but characters like Aubrey and uh, Ginger and even more mainstream characters like uh, uh, Rafe Cardones, Weber is taking the time to develop those. And of course, we're still far from done with uh, Shannon Foraker. Non-spoiler hint, her getting to know, uh, honor that is, her, her getting to know uh, Shannon and Caslet is going to be significant. We do get the obligatory battle against the overwhelming odds that uh, tends to wrap up the stories. And in this case, it was sort of a mutually assured destruction. But I'll tell you what, he, he continues yeah. to kick butt uh, looking at the different aspects and different doctrines of naval battle because that that big battle is a, a whole different animal than what we've seen before. And 
what we see with the naval combat is going to be very important because one of my quotes, in fact, points this out. It points out the obvious. Uh, what they're doing here may have some uh, impact on the doctrines in the course of the war. So, Jim, I'm going to pass it back to you so you can guide us through the story itself. All right. I'll bring up the point. We can comment as we go. So after a little over three years of exile on Grayson, some of Honor Harrington's political enemies conspire to attempt to take care of two problems at the same time. Klaus Hauptmann sees an opportunity to stop the raiding of his fleet by pirates in the Silesium system, and at the same time Reginald Hausman is convinced that Honor could be sent out on a mission she won't return from by commanding a squadron of prototype vessels. Um, at the urging of Hauptmann, Honor is invited back into the Manticoran service as the commander of the Wayfarer, a converted merchantman-type ship with heavy armaments, but light on defenses. Yeah. I liked how she, uh, she, he, Weber, painted Hauptmann as a guy who understandably is focused almost entirely on business and commerce and everything is about him in a not always a professional way in fact not in a professional way his losses the cost of his business and all of that but his complaints to the navy now he doesn't know what the whole navy's doing and he does know that they're at war but his complaints to the navy are legit you're not maintaining open sea lines of communication mm -hmm. for commerce and yep. I'm going to hit a point because of my losses that I'm not going to do commerce out in this particular region. And what and he's really talking about he is economics. You're right. Mm -hmm. So that was an awesome stage setter for something that comes later in the book. But that's a legit, I felt that was a legitimate, selfish, he is a selfish man, but I'm going to put selfish in air quotes. A, a selfish view of the world related to where he lives in it. Hey, Nate, big mm. Navy, all you admirals, you really, you can't just make sure pirates aren't blowing my ships up? Come on, man. Well, we're going to see the environment he's complaining about unfold in this book, and it's pretty cool. And we're going to see Hauptman mm -hmm. change. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's one of the other major pieces of character growth uh, in this as well, in fact. And I like to, I like the way they phrase it, uh, her exile. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Her, her exile means by, by exile, it means she is a, she is the second commanding admiral of the second most important fleet of the Manticoran Alliance. And yeah. she is a head of state with more individual power than anyone in the, in the kingdom of Manticore, short of the queen or the prime minister, some exile. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're gonna see. We're gonna see as we go in through this story what those changes in her reality have had on her, as far as how she interacts and relates with people. Mm. As far as I was concerned, when I saw Hausman and Hauptman together in the same room, it was like, this is not going to end well. <laughs> I enjoyed that, that Hauptman, Klaus, the businessman, mm -hmm. who, by the way, his world revolves around economics, which is Hausman's world. 
uh, Hauptmann's mm-hmm. reaction to Hausman was, I want to slap him in the face, basically. Yeah, pretty much everyone hates the, the guy. <laughs> and thought, man, even <laughs> even even Hausman can't make friends out of someone who's sort of the same guy in a way. In a way, so yeah. I, I I chuckled when I got to that part where he he was considering how much he'd like to knock sense into uh, our economist buddy and self-proclaimed military strategist and mm-hmm. all the all the stuff that he he's proud of himself for. But mm-hmm. yeah. All right, moving along Uh in Silesia, pirates are a constant problem. The Manticore Navy was able to keep the problem under control until the war with Haven started. With the Manticore Navy needed elsewhere, the pirates have been operating unchecked for some time. Another consideration is that the Silesian space is somewhat a disputed area between Manticore and Andermani Empire. Uh, It is also unknown that the Havenites are operating as pirates in the area in order to destabilize Manticore and trade and make themselves look more favorable to the Andermani. Yeah. At this point, they're wanting to make them look more favorable and they want to try and kind of put a wedge. There's some tensions between the Anderman and the Manticorans. They need a little help if they're going to degrade sufficiently. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. And Honor did a great job as a diplomat. Yes. yes. And that goes, Jim, very much to what I was uh, talking about, where we're seeing the new Honor. Mm-hmm. The way, the way she handles Herzog von Robinstrange is, <laughs> I, yeah, Chin Lu. It was, it was, it was masterful. Yep. Yeah. And the way he handled her, though, mm-hmm. what, what, what is especially, also important. Yeah, especially the way the Andermani uh, seemed very Prussian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by, by okay. design. By yeah, design. Oh, yeah. German Definitely. with a Chinese accent. Well, the German, you know, I could understand it. Uh, I could figure out what they were saying. Uh, I actually didn't have to look it up. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, that and that's where a lot of the exposition came in. I mean, he he spent, I think, the better part of a chapter on the history of, yeah. uh, you know, on the history of Gustav Andermann and yeah, how he, h- how the empire came to be. Please skip ahead thirty pages. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, you're thinking that chapter was the longest ten chapters of my life. Yeah, See, I, I love that kind. Of, I, I I love that kind of development. It's I knew. Well, I can't say I if know it's because well I haven't read past this book. But I I read all of that, which is why my attitude changed a little bit about the amount of exposition. I read all of that, and not just this. There were other parts of the book where I realized he is setting the stage for a lot of stuff later. Yeah, if he's not, I'll get mad about it. But I I. He, he probably, this is just how he's going to tell the story. And I, I like you, Jim, I kind of wish there was less of the exposition or it was done, um, somehow differently, but, uh, I, I relented (laughs) frankly. And, uh, I'm just, I'm just going to believe we learned all that stuff about the Andermani because it's going to matter a lot later and, he's not going to have the time to go back and explain something that we got in this book. Uh, my problem will be, I probably won't remember what he explained in this book because we'll be, you know, 
no, you'll remember. It, it, it'll, it'll, you'll have the familiarity when it comes up. The way it comes, he'll up. have to. He'll have to explain stuff that comes up seven books after that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, and you know, yes. you know, at my my age, I'll tell you what. That's taking a big risk on me remembering <laughs> all this stuff. All right. So, in the meantime, Honor leads her crew in various battles against the pirates. Rather than the Havenites ingratiating themselves to the Andermani, it is Honor who makes headway with the government through the cousin of their emperor, and I guess we talked about that already. Mm -hmm. So, I'll move ahead. Uh, Havenite light cruiser Valbon's commander, Warner Caslett, has been in pursuit of a particularly repugnant group of raiders. He comes across what he assumes is a Manticoran merchant ship being attacked by pirates, and he goes to their rescue, only to find out that he is helping the Wayfarer under the command of Honor Harrington. Honor forces Caslet to surrender his ship and is taken aboard the Wayfarer, In and in light of Caslet's honorable actions, Honor regrets she has to take him on board as a prisoner of war. Those from Valbon are treated uh, as guests of the Manticoran. No good deed goes so, unpunished. I tell you what, I felt so bad for Honor in here. For Honor or for you know, Warner? Oh, yeah, well, e- either way. Because Honor didn't want to do that to him. Take or, or, yeah. or his crew after they heroically came to the rescue, even though they realized that there was no rescuing about it. But as far as they were concerned, they were they were uh, <laughs> behaving behaving bravely. And then yeah. Honor says, "Well, yep, welcome aboard. Get to the brig." <laughs> you know, yeah, but, yeah. yeah I, uh, you're, I, I loved you're, Shannon's reaction when Honor rolled. When Anna rolled the wedge and they brought the full broadside to bear. I yeah. mean, those were capital ship grazers, you know, super dreadnought grazers. Super dreadnought, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pummeling into a bunch of heavy cruisers or battle cruisers. Yeah. yeah. That's when he, and that's when he, I couldn't use the, that as a quote. Line. Hmm? That's when he uttered that very famous line. Looks like I picked the wrong day to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh wait no that was airplane i'm sorry yeah that was yeah so that was a different oh thing. gosh <laughs> that, all I right felt bad for that guy yep yeah i i, I just kind of felt bad for everybody because it was just oh my gosh all right so anyway with additional intelligence from the havenites honor takes the fight to the source of the piracy by going after their megalomaniacal leader, Andre Warnicky. Honor and her crew are horrified when Warnicky shows he is willing to destroy the planet rather than be captured by uh, her by detonating a nuclear device planted in the middle of a city. Honor uses a clever hostage gambit to lure Warnicky off the planet and liberates uh, the planet uh, he was occupying. That guy's a dirt bag. Yep. Oh, this was this was a very uncomfortable section of the book to read. Yeah. And he he pulls a he tries to pull a stunt that is so common in the real world among uh evil people and that is uh in this case he says I've got bombs in cities. I've got the trigger right here. 
And don't you make me push it. Mm-hmm. If you make mm-hmm. me push it, it's your fault. Yeah. yeah. And Honor basically says, yeah, I don't think so. And, and he does push the button and wipes out a city full of his people. But to try and shift the blame in advance, well, if you don't do what I want, then it's your fault when I do the bad things that I want to do. What a bent mm-hmm. uh, line of logic. But what's sad is that there are people like that in the real world. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I know I'm evil, but like if you that. don't do what I want, I'm going to be eviler. And that's on you. That's not on me. No, you're the evil person, dude. Own it. And she, mm-hmm. she, uh, she lets him have it. Yeah. What a what a wicked man. Yeah. Yeah. And I love and the way she referred, lets him have it. And that's yeah. why I referred to him as a megalomaniac because he yeah. <laughs> he he completely believes he's justified in in whatever he does. Mhm. Yeah. It's sick. So 1911 yeah, it in a briefcase. Yeah. That's respectable. Yeah. For, for 45 <laughs> ACP, there ain't no substitute. It's still around in 2000 years. Yeah. All right. So, oh, I do have the- to bring up one 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 piece here, and it'll this will be in one of my shorter quotes. Um, okay. Caslet wh- gets an even better. You know, it was explicative deleted literally on Shannon's Forker's uh, reaction to the grazers. What she did with the missile pods to take out Warnicky's uh, fleet. He mm-hmm. he was invited to the bridge to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and his thoughts there are going to prove, like I said, that'll be one of my quotes. All right. So after defeating the pirates, Honor goes hunting for the Havenite raiders, leading to a large-scale conflict. Hauptman and his daughter are aboard the liner Artemis. Honor orders them to hide while she lures the Havenites into a battle, bypassing the Artemis. In the in the battle, two Havenite battle cruisers are destroyed, but the Wayfarer is also destroyed, and most of her crew are killed. Honor and what remains of her crew are rescued by Artemis and are returned to Manticore in space. The Havenite prisoners are repatriated without condition, while Honor and Hauptman reconcile their differences. Uh-huh. So, I the part of this section that that really was was neat was Hauptman was all bent out of shape and complaining and screaming and yelling and his daughter said will you shut up don't you realize she is sacrificing herself to save your butt yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. she's going to die to save your life yeah and uh you know and that kind of brought him up short yeah. yep you know it took his daughter to say it anyone else could have said that and he wouldn't have cared probably not mm-hmm so I was very happy to see the Havenites repatriated. Yes. Yes. I thought in they- In fact, she I gave him they, a cover story. Yeah. Uh, that they were I using thought, an Andermani uh, transponder code. Yeah. And I thought that was uh, completely appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I was glad they did it. Yep. We've been, we've been led up to this book to see the Havenites as, as, as a very bad group of people. Okay. Well, a few but exceptions. I, well, very Thomas Tisman, for example. Yeah, very few. But at the same time, you know, we find out that there are some good Havenites in in there. Any comments from you guys on on this at all? Not at the moment. Okay. One particular. There's a couple characters mentioned when we get to the characters 
they seem minor characters now, but they're worth mentioning so you know to keep an eye out for them. Okay. All right. So this is a subplot. That's the A story. Now the B story. Yeah. The subplot I thought was worth discussing. With an extreme shortage of personnel, Wayfarer and the other ships in her squadron are forced to take on less than desirable crew. One such crewman is Randy Steelman, a malcontent bully who enjoys hurting people. When he takes an immediate dislike to a weaker crewman, Aubrey Wanderman, Steilman almost beats Aubrey to death and was only saved when Steilman thought an officer was going to witness the beating. Aubrey turned uh, the tides by training in the martial arts and incapacitating Steilman. In addition to this, Steilman and a small group of his henchmen were planning to jump ship, join the pirates, and sell technical information to the Havenites. Honor sent Steilman and his band to the brig and were killed in the exchange of fire with the Havenite battle cruisers. Yeah, they got what they deserved. So, Raul, why don't you go ahead and lead us into a discussion of the characters. As as I've kind of taken, I, I'm just picking out some of my favorites and characters that I think I need to highlight, uh, both for this story and what's going on in the future. And I'll give folks an, an opportunity to chime in their thoughts. Also... Uh, if I miss someone that you have an interest in, make sure you bring them up. Honor Harrington, I'm really not going to bring up a lot because we've already discussed her. The big thing is her maturation, and she's really becoming a mover and shaker in, in the world, enough that the Andermani Empire flagged her as someone to watch. Nimitz, Mr. Tree Cat Daddy, you, you'll notice there's changes between her and Nimitz and their link. That that's part of the development of the tree cat. Uh, Rock. Yeah, it even gets discussed in the book a little bit. That was neat. Indeed. Uh, we do see Rafe Cadronis back, uh, familiar face. And he actually gets, uh, his character actually gets developed a bit, in, especially in that uh, secondary uh, story, that, that B story, the uh, Aubrey Wanderman, uh, Ginger Lewis uh, story. Uh, we, we have uh, Scotty and Horace back. You notice they always seem to be in pairs. Uh, the, the, they're a match mm-hmm. set. Horace is married now to a Marine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he 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 married uh, Babcock. Funny. Which is good good for our man Wanderman because, uh, and that comes out in the story, right? That the, yeah. the Marines and the Navy don't typically get along, but they actually like Horace because he's married to him. The, they being the Marines like Horace, they respect his rank, but they like him because he, he's married to a Marine. It's like, well, if a Marine said you're okay, then we're okay with you. And it's not that Horace doesn't like Marines. In fact, he loves Marines. He loves punching (laughs) them in the face repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, and we find out he has still got his badass quotient going quite strong. Uh, new character that showed up, Harold Shue, the chief engineer and Samantha's two leg. As the tree cats refer yeah. to humans. Sadly, he actually gets killed in the story. He they, they they really get you liking the guy. Yeah, it was a bit of a gut punch. And then they just yeah he he just gets snuffed away uh, with, with a with a missile hit. His companion Samantha, however, doesn't die. And this is a tree cat worth watching. 
in part because she's obviously, you know, she's Nimitz's mate, um, spouse in tree cat terms, uh, but for other reasons as well. We see Sally McBride again, the senior master chief petty officer at this point as the bosun. As Jim said, we get Ginger Lewis and Aubrey Wanderman introduced to us. Wanderman is a gravitics guru, and I think of him as one of the main characters of the story. Because there, there were points where I was wanting to get through the battles so I could see what they were going to do with Wanderman next. When they very first introduced him, by the way, uh, I thought, oh, here we go. Yeah, I thought he was going to be the Styleman character until we met Styleman. <laughs> um, because he was he was young and running at the nose, and that was very clear. But he was also clearly very smart, and he came across as super arrogant. Yeah. And then when he draws an assignment on the Wayfarer, his attitude was, I forget the word that Weber used, like he felt like he was banished or sidelined or something. Like mm -hmm. he he had un, um, un contempt. He, he, I'll call it undisciplined um, pride in, he knew he was a smart guy. He knew yeah. it. And, but he he didn't know how to be humble about it. He's going to learn that in this book. But mm -hmm. uh, I thought, oh, gee, here here we go now with this. Uh, yep. It turns out he's a good dude. Uh, Stileman was the was the problem child. Mm -hmm. And I love the way Ginger uh, Lewis set him straight. His his best friend. Yeah, kind of a new favorite character for me. We'll you'll you'll get to see some more of her. Um, yeah, older lady. Yeah. Big sister, right? Big sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thank God he went that approach. Uh, I, my, my wife is a K drama junkie, so it's you know everyone. It's every Korean drama series has to have its uh, shipping uh, side story. Here <laughs> it was no big sister, best friends. Loved it. Yeah. Yep. Our favorite uh, tech nerd and tack witch is back uh, in the form of shannon foraker warner caslett's back again as well and we have the somewhat generic uh bad guy commodore abraham uh jurgens that as ba basically he and honor blow each other to hell and we have two new characters introduced but they're actually a fairly minor role in this story and that's Javier Giscard, uh, the Havenite uh, fleet commander. We might want to keep an eye on this guy. What little we did see, he's kind—he's of, another one of those Havenites that kind of is in the same vein as uh, Kazlid and Tiesman and you. Basically a decent guy, a patriotic guy who, who loves his country, but kind of, I guess one way of putting it, he loves his country, but hates the government. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. Yeah. And another one is the people's commissioner on his flagship, Eloise Pritchard. She's his commissioner and friend. Commissioner with benefits, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're lovers and they have, they have to keep that relationship very low key or, I mean, frankly, it'd get them both killed. And of course, if we're keeping an eye on Giscard, we probably want to keep an eye on Pritchard as well going forward. So just a couple of hints there. Uh, Harold Sikowski and Chris Hurlman are worth mentioning. Uh, they were the 
captain and first mate of the uh, uh, of the merchantman that was at the beginning of the story that was captured by the pirates. Jim, you were talking about stuff that was hard to read. Chris's story, Hurlman's story, was tough. It, it was hard to get through at points. Mm-hmm. Reginald Houseman, yeah, he's still around. Enough that. Move on. Everyone hates him. Even Klaus Hauptmann, uh, the shipping magnet, uh, magnet, enemy of ha- honor. He learns a little humility in this, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, bit of bit of a character growth, and that character growth isn't wasted. Uh, the fact that he isn't killed in this book means he's still around. So assume we're not done with this character, as well as his daughter Stacy, <laughs> who apparently has a surprisingly lot in common with honor. Yeah. I, I loved it, Jim, and it almost was going to be one of my quotes, but, but it didn't. The way Stacy defends honor in uh, that peep attack really was impressive. Mm-hmm. Ah, Chenlu Anderman, Herzog von Ravenstrange. <laughs> this is going to be another great recurring character that, that I just fell in love with. It's surprising how much he knew about Honor and her background. The Andermans consider her important enough to have that kind of detail and devote that kind of intelligence resources to her. We've got Stileman and friends and the piece of slime got what he deserved. That's really all that needs to be said. Yeah, Jim. Oh, I, I, you know something? Yes. This is obviously this part of the story was with, I call him Steelman. He is... He is a bad person. He's a very bad person all the way around. There, there, absolutely nothing about him that is redeeming or redeemable, and, in my opinion. Yeah, and we get this great satisfaction when Aubrey beats the snot out of him. Indeed. All right. However, however, you know something. A lot of the stories we read are all about revenge against somebody, and. Styleman would have probably been made, I think, a better character if we had some idea what made him the way he is. And take this section and turn it less, take it less as a revenge story uh, and turning it around and so we, we understand a little more about him and at least give him some room for forgiveness. I, you know, I, I, I just... I hate to see someone like this, and I don't know why. Why Why is Stileman the way, or Steelman, why is he the way he I've is? I've actually heard it pronounced both ways. Yeah. So I, I just, th- that was just a thought I had. I actually get that. I, I actually get exactly where, I get exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. And, and it's sort of uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other in some cases. Yeah. I do appreciate that Weber took the time to build this character out even though he's lost at the end of the book, the way that he Mm -hmm. did with some of the good characters too. Yeah. They didn't, Stileman's a red shirt on the, on the bad side, but we actually got to know this guy and know him well enough to, to really kind of hate him. Um, Yeah. I, that's kind of a cool take on it though, Jim, that what, if there was a back, well, there, there was, it just apparently. What made, yeah. Why is he the way he is? What made him such a, such a jerk? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some people really are just born that way. Uh, we, we've, I've known them. You've known them. Uh, yeah. Some people, after getting the crap beat out of him the way Aubrey did, 
or getting put in their place strongly enough are going to stop and say, whoa, wait a second here. In fact, that's more or less what happened with Klaus uh, Hauptmann. Uh, let, let's face it, he he was quite fine with honor getting sent out here and probably getting killed with the mm-hmm. idea that, hey, yeah. hopefully she'll take out some of the bad guys before she's gone. And he ends up apologizing to her and asking her forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Stileman's the other end of the extreme. Some people like that just double down on stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, I just thought that was a, a thread that could have been pulled on a little bit. But, I, you know, I realize that as far as the story is concerned, his background may not have been necessary. We just needed a bad guy to beat up. Mm-hmm. Of course, you so. do realize, Jim, that would have, that would, you're, what you're asking essentially is for more exposition. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not actually, nah. but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm just, yeah. Uh, you know, you knew this guy was going to get, he was going, he was going to have a bad time at the end of his story, mm-hmm. whatever it was, because nobody cared about him. Yeah. You know, and Aubrey got all the attention. So, <laughs> You know, we have, we came to like this guy and we came to hate Steelman. And so, uh, good versus evil and evil lost mm-hmm. again, and because good used evil's tactics to, <laughs> to win the battle. I fought the law and the law won. Yeah. All right. So move on. I, I was going to say the only other one I'm going to mention is Andre Warnicky, which you, you've brought up, uh, evil bastard wingnut enough said. Except I do, you have to admit, I, I like the way Honor gets the drop on him and his goons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Love me some 45 ACP. <laughs> uh, places, things, organizations. I guess we've already mentioned Celestia, which is a loose confederation. Not federation, but confederation, which is basically a continuous train wreck about to split up. We are introduced to the Andaman Empire, which I is, is a group that I found fascinating with, with, with some great characters. And like I said, we are definitely going to be seeing more of those. What was done here sets up story elements in the future. And JP, you're, you're, our, histori- you're our historical uh, consultant, our military consultant. So I'm going to turn this over to you on a particular subject that of q-ships so q-ships we teased it earlier i'm just going to give a quick data dump on what they are Uh, i'm sure people who were curious already went out and looked maybe some didn't have time so this might satisfy um, some questions a little bit and then i have some links that i put in my notes that we can include in the show notes if uh, you guys think that's prudent, but uh, just places people can go to learn more if they're interested. So Q-ships, while they weren't called Q-ships at the time, there are records of armed merchant vessels reportedly used by England against pirates as early as 1675. So that's kind of a, you know, there's a long history of this, but it's not a leap to think if you have a problem with pirates attacking your merchants that if you arm the merchants maybe they can do a little something about it so 1675 there are records that go back then to something that is akin to the q ship uh, not in world war one world war ii they were used primarily against subs 
Uh, obviously, we're not talking submarines in 1675, just pirates afloat, but pirates would avoid the Navy. They would go after merchants looking to get a lot of goods, uh, perhaps press some crew members into service, uh, take a ship or destroy a ship, whatever. Uh, the Q-ships as we know them today originated with Britain during World War I, specifically in 1915, in an effort to counter German U-boats. The British Navy wasn't able to effectively counter the Germans as they were um, attacking merchant shipping on the open ocean. The German effort was to strangle sea lines of communication. Their goal, if you interrupt commerce and logistics uh, for your enemy, you can actually cripple your enemy, not just the tactical crippling of ships or gaining loot or whatever you want. Uh, the result uh, of that, though, was that the British created a number of heavily armed merchant ships based out of a place called Queensland, Ireland. And so that's, that's where, the, where Q. the name Q-ship came from, because the ships were were uh, operated out of Queensland. It was essentially a secret program, and Weber alludes to this problem, this dilemma in the book, because your Q-ships, having Q-ships is a secret until you use them, and then it's not really a very good secret anymore. So you watch mm -hmm. Honor and her squadron wrestle with the fact that uh, we're going to slip around, we're going to do some things, we're going to look like merchants, but really the first time we apply a beating to somebody, the word's going to be on the street. Um, so we get history in Weber's book talking about the, the genesis of the, the modern-day Q-ships. During World War II, Britain and the United States on the Allied side, as well as Germany and Japan— all built and used Q-ships. Uh, so uh, for folks who might wonder about the legality of Q-ships, they are legal. Uh, they're legal and used in a matter that's a manner that's consistent with the law of the sea, it's often called, and, and more broadly, the law of armed conflict. But they, they are or can be in a gray area if those Q-ship crews begin to operate like pirates. And you get a little hint of that potential in this book, although it's not really a main part of the story. Is You, know, you can have a Q-ship, which is a sanctioned warship, essentially, start to, to do things that might be off the record. But Weber doesn't go there. At least he doesn't go there in this book. Um, he does go there with the privateers mm -hmm. um, that I'll mention next. Um, but I, there are some good resources out there for folks interested in Q-ships in the real world and how they were used. There's a book that was written in 1922 yep. by a naval officer um, by the last name of Chatterton. Um, you can get that book for free through the Gutenberg Press if you don't mind reading an HTML version of it. It's it's a hundred pages, hundred and hundred and twenty-five pages, something like that. It's a pretty cool. It's a pretty cool history, essentially, of Q ships. Um, if you want a non-HTML copy, you can buy buy a copy of that thing off of Amazon too. It's still in print. Um, Naval History and Heritage Command has a good paper, a couple papers on Q ships during World War II, specifically. So you can you can look those folks up too. Mm -hmm. I said, well, we'll probably figure out a clean way to drop some of that data in the show notes. People can just go right to those sites if you care. Um, right. So privateers and pirates, those are a big part of the story too. It's why we have the Q ships in play. Privateers are a that is not a jargon. 
or a thing that Weber made up. That's a real thing. They are armed ships that are owned and crewed by private individuals holding what is essentially a government commission or governmental authority during wartime. Some may call them mercenaries. uh, That is literally a debate that rages and will never get settled. Uh, What's the difference between a privateer and a mercenary? Uh, Awesome discussion to have and Um, there's good arguments on, on both sides, but historically, uh, privateers have been used to capture merchant ships that belong to the enemy. They're considered lawful combatants, and it's generally accepted that they're protected under the Geneva conventions. If you want to nerd out on that, you can go, uh, there's a really good article written, uh, and in the U S Naval Institute's, uh, archives, that talks about the legality of the use and how it ties back to Geneva Convention and things like that of privateers. So and think you know, of a privateer as a as a civilian, a private ship, private crew, but they are operating with a government charter or commission or authority specifically to interdict supplies. Raul, you had a question. I, you know, I was just going to say, you know, and of the references that you've uh, tossed out, you really get a feeling that David Weber has probably read mo- much of the same material. He he has to have. Um, mm-hmm. This guy, I, I can't say enough about how much homework he must have done in writing these books because he's got, they're just packed full of amazing things that you I'll I'll geek out on something and you'll geek out on a different thing and Jim on another thing. And Weber is either like the Uber geek, you know, the alpha geek, or or he's got a really good circle of advisors around him. And I it really doesn't From what matter I understand he is the, the alpha of the geek. book. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And I've seen some interviews with him. And uh, he sure seems to know. He doesn't go, well, mm-hmm. you know, there's a guy and he told, he gave me all the info and I wrote about it. I'm really thankful for that guy. Weber seems to know his stuff. And uh, yeah. it comes out in these books. So the other the other element here, we've got the Q-ships. We have these, these people called privateers. And then we've got pirates. And the pirates are the problem uh, in Weber's story. And the pirates are a problem in the real world. Uh, historically, they've been a problem. Go, let's go again back into the uh, 1600s and stuff. But even today, modern day pirates are a real thing. Um, some people laugh and giggle and think, you know, mm-hmm. tall ships with flags and dudes with uh, peg legs and patches on their eyes. Uh, it, yes, but uh, take 10 minutes of your time and get out there and look at credible sources and you'll see the damage pirates do. Um, today and every day out on the open seas yep. and navies around the world are, are always working to suppress the pirates ability to strangle open commerce and sea lines of communication as they're called. Um, they are legally robbers. Um, I'm using that term out of naval doctrine. I don't want to get into a bait with people about robbery versus, uh, burglary and all that kind of stuff, but they, <laughs> They're, they're legally robbers, and I'm going to use the definition that's legally that's used legally when pirates are captured and dealt with. Robbery is theft. So these guys are thieves. We can use that safe word, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Robbery is theft that happens when the victim is present. So you think about pirates coming on board a ship and killing the crew or taking them hostage and plundering and doing all of the things. That's robbery. Uh, the victim is present. 
they're not going into shipyards and uh, finding the abandoned ship that has no crew on one ships don't usually have no crew on them if they're even if they're in repair there is an affiliated or an associated crew but um so they're robbing because the victim is present burglary by the way you know i said i don't want to get into a debate about it. i'm just gonna tell you how the terms are used today burglary is also theft but it happens when the victim is not present so when when pirates are dealt with they're dealt with under statutes and codes that define them as robbers uh, it's neither here nor there that they are thieves and they're they're taking things that are not lawfully theirs to take under any construct to include the laws of war and so they're they're dealt with as criminals um either way they're that's probably all that anyone needs to know overboard y- yes um so that that gets us through the language that we see Weber using because we have pirates and we have privateers. Um, they are not one and the same. Um, there's a cool side discussion to have with your friends someday about whether or not privateers are mercenaries. I said that that is a legit conversation to have, and there are good arguments on both sides. You know, so are we actually using mercenaries or not? We is not, mm-hmm. you know, us in our country. It's all it's countries around the world are they are are governments using mercenaries you just call them privateers and it's and it's cool that way or whatever so fun debate right. to have outside of the scope of weber's book but now you know who's who in the zoo when they get the privateer label they get the pirate label or they're or they're in the navy but they're not on a traditional naval vessel they're on this other weird thing called a q-ship Mm-hmm. Um, oh, by the way, I mentioned Queensland Q-ship because the ships were, uh, in some cases, I think even built in Queensland, Ireland, right. they were certainly operated out of there. Later, meaning World War II, uh, quite often there are actually naval records that were the U.S. Navy was talking to the Allies and saying that they needed, they would refer to Q-ships and they would call them Queen's ships. And that could be, again, mm-hmm. an abbreviation for Queensland ships. Or it could be literally like, you know, those ships that the queen um, had chartered for okay. or commissioned for use. So neither here nor there. It's just interesting history. And uh, and I'm going to I'm going to stop there. And, and well, uh, JP, I not going to quite stop because we're going to. In fact, this might segue into one of your themes, in fact, because I was going to just ask you to continue on with some of the themes of the book. OK. Um, any, any thoughts before I do that, though, from either of you guys? No, it was an yeah. interesting discussion, and I'm biting my tongue uh, to not go in to not uh, follow the rabbit hole of mercenary versus privateer. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I learned I learned a lot, so we'll have to do that over well, a cold one. We can, one we can thank uh, the good Mister Weber for writing stories that have this kind of detail <laughs> in them. It's it's pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all right, so themes, uh, honor. I, it's every book, right? Honor the concept personified and honor the character, but also in other characters running through this book in all kinds of different ways. The burden of command, again, a recurring theme. And and in this case, we get some interesting insights into the lawful authority of a ship's captain when that ship is at sea, or in this case in space. There is no equivalent to the power and the authority that a ship's captain has, a military ship's captain has Mm -hmm. anywhere else in in the world there's no civilian equivalent to to the lawful authority you know, that, that captain has it's a it's amazing i take exception to that go uh, for it 
the non-military, the civilian world band directors. <laughs> okay, that's probably fair. That's okay. I, that, that's I, that, uh, that's believable. I, <laughs> <laughs> <if> you, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and we're not see, but we we see what you're saying. We see what you're saying, JP. Not just with honor and the Manticorans, but also with the Andermani and very yep. much so with the uh, People's Republic, with, with Caslet. And one of the places where, again, we get a glimpse of this, we get no detail, but um, Honor is bound by some rule set to handle the ship that she captures. And she uh-huh. laments a little bit that what she has to do, right? Because the captain yeah. of that ship and his crew had acted honorably. So it's not like captains are above law. Um, she is bound by a set of rules that she has to follow. We've seen this all through the series. Mm-hmm. At the same time, at the end of the book, we watch her essentially establish um, the conditions that allow her to repatriate people. Yes. And, um, and we see that kind of authority so w- exercise. Wait, where were the rules that covered that? Well, uh, she has authority as a as a combat commander and a ship's captain that, that gives gives her some real latitude you see this too if you study the american civil war not just Uh that but it's the first one that came to mind when at the end of the war and you've got significant forces armies surrendering to other armies and apparently i'm using that word with quotes uh the commander surrendered to had an incredible amount of authority to decide what you were going to do with that surrendering army. Uh-huh. And there's some just phenomenal, very honorable stories about how uh, those surrenders were handled, how the officers, the generals and the subordinate officers were handled, how the the enlisted were handled. There is huge discretion and authority that go with a military commission, more so with a person who is a legal commander, meaning in a position of command, not the rank commander, Mm-hmm. And then there are unique and historic authorities that rest with a captain of a ship. Yep. And you just get to see hints of that here. It's really cool stuff. And again, and, people and you out see there it going, directly. what are you talking about? This is fascinating. You will, you'll you have more to read and, with, uh, than you have years on the earth. What's that? I was say, and you see that directly with Caslet and his decision to help what he thinks is just a, yes. a merchantman yes. and a Manticoran merchantman at that. Yep. E- even though he's yep. so, he's under orders to disable and capture those ships, so a, a more uh, if you he, he would have been legally correct to just let the pirates blow away the wayfarer yes. if it really were a merchantman. Yes. And, and this, he, this is why at our military academies and war colleges there is significant amount of time spent on ethics as it relates to warfare. Which I believe is because something of the you taught, authority correct? and the latitude. That, what's that? Um, Which is something uh, I yes, believe not, you taught, correct? I did. Uh, not. Are we allowed to I mention that, or does Jim need to ethics? edit it? Yeah, that's fine. Um, I didn't teach ethics as a course. I taught uh, more along the lines of what we're discussing now, which is the application of those ethics in various situations, and I say that hesitantly because it sounds like situational ethics that's not what i'm talking about nope. that 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 code of honor that that girds all of the 
rules that you follow, the what I'll call the law, you know, the laws, the statutes, the instructions, the regulations, um, tactics and techniques and procedures. There's an underlying um, body of uh, ethics, for lack of a better descriptor, morals and ethics that that you are supposed to have enough experience in and training in and have thought about so that when the time comes and you're faced with the situations like you see in this book, you're making decisions that are informed not just by a set mm-hmm. of rules, but by that that ethical uh, foundation that it sits on. Yeah. Right. Sorry to, so, sorry to interrupt. So I, I'll, um, I'll let you move on. No, it's it's okay. Um, it's okay. I, yes, I taught that um, more in the context of what Weber is writing here. It's actually going to lead to a question I have one before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we have honor. We have the burden of command um, because with all that responsibility comes uh, a burden. Um, the role of NCOs shines in this book, especially senior NCOs and kind of what their place is in terms of a command what they do for a commander. Uh, and there were comments in the book a few times they think about it might be the captain's ship, but it's the NCOs that actually are running the ship. Um, mm-hmm. Not taken out of context, that is a totally true statement. Um, your senior NCOs are, that is, those are the professionals that make it, whatever it is, happen. Um, they're, uh, you know, they, they're essential to what goes on. Um, the commander is, has got the bigger picture and the NCOs are making the mission happen. It's an awesome thing to see in the real world. Yeah. Um, the law of armed conflict, I mentioned that earlier in the law of the sea, um, rendering aid, those kinds of things, the decisions that we watch captains make in this book, um, rendering aid, the treatment of POWs, which is a military thing, um, and how rank even ties to that. We see that in the book, how, how prisoners are treated. Merchant warfare, Last thing I'm going to call out, it hasn't really been a theme before, but it's been, I feel like Weber set the stage for this book and this topic. This is the thing in this book that draws us back into that dime model, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. Those are traditionally taught as instruments of power, of national power. Mm -hmm. And Weber obviously focuses us on the military, um, but he has not shied Mm. away from- For now. Yeah. For now, uh, he has not shied away from economic and to some extent diplomatic. He's dabbled in them. The informational stuff he's getting at through Clausewitz a little bit, but uh, but not exactly. So it, it's cool to watch him paint this picture. We're almost getting a little mini degree out of what Weber's doing for us. Um, so merchant warfare, which is the phrase used in the book, Navy is spread too thin because of the ongoing war with Haven to ensure free and open sea lines of communication, as I mentioned. Um, that puts commerce at risk. Commerce is what fuels economies. Um, commercial and merchant losses drive prices up and reduce the availability of goods, whether they're imported into the country being interdicted or they are exporting out to some other country. Could be an ally in the war. Um, uglier yet, merchants die you can weaken an opponent's commerce and therefore their economy as well as that of their allies, um, then you, and, and by the way, you may also weaken their domestic stability. When people at home begin to hurt, uh, they get angry about the war. So, and guess who that impacts? The uh-huh. government and the military. So this thing that Weber is getting at, this merchant warfare is a big deal. 
even though the way that it's presented in here, and I don't think Weber is trying to mischaracterize it, I think he's showing us something most people never see. There's the big war going on. This is this is our buddy House or uh, Hauptman, Klaus Hauptman, right? It's all about mm-hmm. me. It's all about business. What's really weird is it actually is a whole lot about him and business. If if business and open commerce and trade get shut down, that has an impact on the nation. Yeah. And it, it's not just selfishness. His concerns in that respect are absolutely legitimate. Yeah. He starts though at it selfishly. Yes. Or that's the impression I get. He's not wrong. I just don't like that he's that short-sighted because he's not a dumb man. This character mm-hmm. that that was built for us is a really smart guy. So well, he's and, grown a little. Get to watch he, he's things. grown a little in the course he, of yes. this book. Yes, he has. So that's what I got. Too much time spent on themes tied on probably too much time spent on some. Uh, oh, it, it's okay. Historical We're, this, or technical notes, but it's especially the uh, dime framework of uh, of uh, national power is going to be a big part of our discussions going forward. In fact, we'll be looking at a different aspect of that in our next book. But that's sweet. Yeah, you, you're gonna like it. So we're we're beginning to head toward the toward the end of Plot the discussion points. on this book, and we need to yeah probably take the time to hit our favorite um, points of plot. And Jim, we're How gonna about, go to you uh, first for that. Heck yeah. Okay. Uh, there are two instances where we get a glimpse into different factions or characters, and we see they aren't as evil as uh, we are often led to believe. Uh, except in the case of Randy Steelman, of course. In the case of Klaus Hauptmann, uh, he plots in the beginning to find a way to stop the pirates from raiding his ships, and along with Hausman, he plots to find a way to eliminate honor from their lives once and for all. In the end, while blustering about his own self-interest, Hauptmann is made aware that honor is willing to sacrifice her ship, the lives of her crew, and her own life to stop the destruction of the ship she that he is traveling on. He is humbled by the realization, thanks to the reaction of Stace, his daughter, and after Honor and the survivors are rescued from the Wayfarer, Hauptman approaches Honor and admits he was wrong about her. He apologizes for the way he has spoken to her and about her in the past, and further pledges to assist her in any way he can. I would have been uh, suspicious of Hauptmann's true motives in this, but thanks to Nimitz, we see he was uh, sincere in his declarations. Mm-hmm. This adds tons of authenticity to the characters in these books. Uh, we get another peek into the characters uh, when we learn the thoughts of one of the characters from the People's Republic following the rescue of Sukowski and his first officer from the raider ship. Caslet tells him, uh, they may be enemies, but peeps aren't without compassion. And I'll have a quote referring to that yep. in a little bit. You know, Jim, with regard to Hopman, one of the things I remember was in when we first saw him on Basilisk Station, he, he was a flat-out SOB, no, no yeah. doubt about it. But there was some sort of hints or drifts that there might be more to the man than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. And, and I, re- I remember the calling that out, in fact. Uh and here we see it. Yeah. Well, and, and see, that's what is so great about these books, because the people are real. Mm-hmm. They, they, even, even the most self-centered 
of people can see that it's not all about them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, well, JP, you, did you want to come up next? You you mentioned one that was a favorite for me, and that was this uh, redemption or conversion of Hauptman. We were reminded at the beginning of the book, through his daughter, actually, we're told she doesn't know honor, but we hear her parrot, her dad, right, uh, saying very harsh things about honor because that's what her father taught her. And then we get to watch him at the end of the book really change. Another way to look at it might be he's happy. He doesn't like Houseman's um, just bad attitude about sending somebody off to die, but he'll tolerate it because it's, you know, no, he feels like no blood on his hands might be the best way to put it. I don't have to see all this nastiness happen. And if it rids us of Harrington and makes my life easier than rock on, well, Mm-hmm. I don't think he foresaw then that he would be the one in space and what an honor would be dying for him. And it, it woke him up um, when the flippant, yeah, well, that's her job. Uh, he didn't like Houseman's flippancy about it. He showed some respect for the commission, not commission, the commitment of these officers. But he had to watch honor literally move forward in preparation to die to save his life. And it, it changed him. It changed yep. him. So there, there was that one. And then honors view of her enemy and her related view of how professional military officers treat their prisoners. And we've seen this before, but uh, specifically, I love how she treated the captain of the ship. She captured late in the book, um, which was very honorably. Um, he was clearly her prisoner uh, she made it clear that he would be treated with all the respect, all the courtesy due to him as an officer and in accordance with his rank. He was as much a guest on her ship as as he was a prisoner. She even has him as a fellow captain dine with her. And I just thought that was what a cool professional gesture. Again, no doubt in his mind that he was a prisoner. They're not buds. Uh, but the professional respect between the two of them was captured very well. You know, and um, both that's of your also two how favorite the, how, plot points. Uh-huh. I was going to say, both yours and Jim's plot points are going to be extremely important elements in the main story arc. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, enough, enough of, well, one, one other thing. That same captain that Honor Takes Prisoner treated her prisoners, his prisoners, uh, also professionally. Mm-hmm. And we, so it, it, it was in that sense, you know, justice served with him. Unfortunately, he, for him, he becomes a prisoner of the enemy. But, you know, if you live, if you die by the sword, because you live by the sword, in this case, he lived an honorable man, was an honorable officer. And, and that was, that came back on him in a good way. Um, yep. as we watched how he cared for the, the two, um, Manticorans that he had, among the crew of a captured ship. Um, and when he found out one, he found out who they were, m- meaning that they, that they were citizens of the enemy, but two, that they were, had been hostages or prisoners of, of bad people, people that he had already decided were bad, um, drove him to treat them properly and, and, uh, respectfully. Mm-hmm. It was, it was cool. So how about you, Raul? Well, Okay. The Hotman arc actually was one of my plot points. I'm not going to rediscuss that again, except to say the one thing you've got to say about Hotman is if he can have a daughter like Stacy, he can't be all bad. And right. in fact, Donna 
uh, reflects on that as well. Both characters are going to prove something more. Favorite plot points? It's actually hard to choose because there is so much to like. So uh, other than that, I've got, I'm going to bring up two specific points and two honorable mentions. Uh, the Aubrey Stileman arc. You know, the, the character's good. It's a great character as is uh, Ginger Lewis's best friend. In, in a way, it, it, it just makes the story. And developing these characters, this is, goes right into what Jim was saying. It makes the series so much real. The Bozen, Rafe, Harkness, they all became, out of the way they took uh, uh, Wanderman under the wing, it just really helped them become real characters for me, not just familiar names. You know, and the interactions from the bottom of the pecking order. I mean, th this was his, th this was uh, Aubrey's and uh, Ginger's first assignment, all the way up through the captain and how th this arc was dealt with. I mean, it just made it a great read. And you knew what the final resolution was going to be. But I mean, you knew that as soon as, uh, as soon as the bosun gave uh, Harkness a little call. Yep. Dang, it was fun getting there. A secondary piece of the plot, but still very important for me that I just loved. And I loved it when I fr first read it as well, was Chin Lu uh, Omdurman's meeting with honor. There was always something I really just liked about the guy. He, he became a favorite character of mine almost off the bat. It didn't have a huge impact on the plot, but it was delightful reading. And you knew it was going to be important because a couple chapters were invested in it. Honors seems to have a soft spot for the Andamani, and so do I. And Herzog von Rabenstrange is a big part of that reason why. It's really worth noting that the Empire has already identified Honor as someone who's going to be a mover and shaker within Manticore and their area of the galaxy at large. Um, I think the only person who really doesn't realize it at this point might be Honor herself. And another thing about this, she knew who Chin Lu was. She knew his connections. And we see how she deals with him. And there, there's a level of comfort around power and around great power that she has now that she didn't have before. It, it's yeah. almost becoming like a second nature to her. And I loved seeing that side of honor that we've spent a couple books developing really come forward. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of... Uh, of the Herzog. Uh, the honorable mentions, uh, Nimitz and Samantha, of course, and, and the bond growth between Honor and Nimitz. Uh, we, we get a little more of tree cat culture. And, and the other honorable mention, I'll just put it in three phrases. Grazers, <laughs> missile pods, and lacks. Light attack craft. Heck yeah. Boom today and boom tomorrow. Enough said. And from there, Jim, I'm going to pass it to you for favorite quotes. All right. So, well, I guess I'll go ahead and start out. Uh, a couple of them I found. Uh, Caslip speaking to Sukowski. Uh, we may be at war with your kingdom, Captain Sukowski, but we're not monsters. We want these people, all of them. And that would be referring to the pirates and particularly uh, a particular nastier group of them that uh, like to perform rapes. I guess there's no better way to put it. And that was one. And then the second one that I liked, that there were several, but I, I narrowed it down to these two. Uh, Hauptmann talking to Honor. I don't like you, my lady. That makes me feel smaller than I'd like to feel. 
but whether I like you or not, I know I've treated you badly. I won't go into all of it. I'll only say that I deeply regret it and that it stops here. I owe you my life. And more importantly, I owe you my daughter's life. And I believe in keeping my accounts squared for better or worse. Maybe that's part of what makes me a son of a bitch from time to time. But the debt I owe you is one that can't be repaid. And I know it. I can only say thank you and apologize for the way I've spoken to you and of you over the years. I was wrong in Basilisk 2, and I want you to know I realized that as well. And then he invites yeah. you to so, dinner. Yeah. Because they, he, because Stacy won't believe him otherwise. <laughs> yep. So, JP, did you want to go next? Sure. I have two that revolve around Honor, the character. Uh, this first one is Honor describing how and why she's handling the pirates that she's captured the way that she is. Um, for context, she's turning them over to the lawful government of the space they were captured in. That government is actually suspected in terms of their motives and culpability related to piracy in their space. Um, and there's a real potential, Honor believes, that they'll free these criminals rather than jail them. And yet she's going to turn the pirates over. And she's questioned about it in a proper way by a crewmate. And here's what she says. That's one reason I wanted to put the fear of God into that sorry scum. Honor twitched her head at the hatch through which the prisoner had vanished. If he does get turned loose, I want him to sweat bullets every time he thinks about going after another Murchie. And that's also why I'm going to tell him and his entire crew one more thing before I hand them over. What's that, my lady? LaFollet asked curiously. One free pass is all they get, Honor said grimly. The next time I see them, every one of them will go out the lock with a pulsar dart in his or her head. LaFollet stared at her, and his face paled at the absolute sincerity of her expression. Does that shock you, Andrew? She asked gently. He hesitated a moment, then nodded, and she sighed sadly. Well, it bothers me too, she admitted. But don't let that fellow's sad sack look fool you. He's a pirate. And pirates aren't glamorous. They're thieves and killers. That other crew I told you about? She quirked an eyebrow and LaFollet nodded. The second time I captured them, they just finished killing 19 people, she said flatly. 19 people whose only offense was to have something they wanted and who'd have been alive if I'd executed them the first time I got my hands on them. So we see Honor learning from her past and applying what she's learned here and now explaining that growth, that, what was the word you used, Raul, at the beginning? The redemption? The rehabilitation. Uh, rehabilitation. Yes. Um, we're, seeing, we're seeing that rehabilitation in practice here. The other one is Honor uh, is preparing to sacrifice herself and her remaining crew and her ship uh, to save the Artemis. This conversation happens on board the Artemis between uh, Fushian, Sukowski, and Stacy Hauptman, our, our good Klaus, our buddy uh, Klaus Hauptman's daughter. Honor's true colors continue to show in this exchange. Uh, so here, here it is. Will she surrender? Fushian asked out of the silence. And Sukowski looked at her. When they open fire on her, will she surrender? No, Sukowski said simply. Why not? Stacy demanded, her voice suddenly sharp. Why not? She's already saved us. 
Why won't she surrender and save her own people? Because she's still protecting us, Sukowski told her as gently as he could. When they get close enough to engage her, they'll also be close enough to spot the drone. Uh, In the context here for folks, uh, if they don't remember this part of the book, uh, the Artemis goes dark, lies dead in space essentially, and Honor deploys a drone to parrot to mimic the Artemis in a hope that they'll draw the, uh, the other side toward them and away from the Artemis, and it works. So when they get close enough to engage her, they'll also be close enough to spot the drone. They'll know we aren't there, but they'll also know within an hour or two when we must have shut down our drive and our vector when we did. That means they'll have a good idea of where we could be if they come back and look for us. The odds are against their finding us, but Lady Harrington intends to make certain they don't. She'll hammer them as long as she has a weapon left. Stace to cripple their sensors and show and slow them down. He saw the tears in Stacy's eyes and put his arm about her as he had about Chris Hurlman. It's her job, Stace, he said softly, her duty. And that woman knows about duty. I spent enough time aboard her ship to know that. And that's the second quote. Yeah. Over to you, Raul. Oh, you know, there's just so many. I, I, I'm going to try to keep it reasonable. I, I, I partly wanted to use Shannon's comment when, when they first saw a hint of what the Wayfarer could do. But we would definitely lose our family rating uh, w- with that explicative. Uh, <laughs> that said, the whole Caslet uh, arc, it's it sort of paired quote. One about midway through the book where uh, he says he's get where he's informed that he's getting a message. Speaker, he rasped, and, and he, he, everyone was still kind of in shock about the way that Q-ship just blew away two uh, armed vessels, two military naval vessels. Speaker, he rasped, unknown cruiser, this is Honor Harrington of Her, of Her Majesty's armed merchant cruiser Wayfarer. A soprano voice said quietly, I appreciate your assistance, and I wish I could offer you the reward your gallantry deserves, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to surrender. I was like, oh, God, you, you, you just, it, it, you feel so sorry for Caslet right at that moment. It, it's, yeah, it, it's painful. And then about uh, three-fourths of the way, when Honor takes out uh, Sherman's uh, Admiral Sherman's task group, the War- Warnicke's Admiral. Warner and Shannon were invited to the bridge as observers, which, when you think about it, is a really, really high privilege she's offering enemy combatants there because they know what they're seeing. Warner Caslett stared at the plot in disbelief as the missile traces spawned like hideous serpents of light. He whirled to the visual display and then staggered back a step as the laser heads detonated. The range was little more than a light second and a half, and the savage white glare of nuclear fire stabbed at his eyes despite the optical filters. God, he thought numbly. Dear, sweet God, this is only a Q-ship. What the hell happens if they fit a warship with, with whatever the hell that was? <laughs> yeah, the, the, those yep. two kind of go together, and, and they'll they'll have meaning as we go on. 
I did have the honor of Klaus uh, interaction that Jim mentioned, and uh, either you or Jim mentioned the quote about uh, Forrester. Meanwhile, she had an excellent glass of wine and a novel, which was thoroughly enjoyable. This Forrester guy writes a <laughs> darn good book, and I can certainly identify with this hero. Besides, she giggled. I like his initials. Yes. Yeah. That, that was the part I was referring yep. to. Yep. But yep. my main quote. First of all, it includes all of chapter 34. <laughs> I'm not going to read all of 34. But in 35, after the fight, uh, f- first we have the captain's mass with Steelman. Honor had seen the results of physical violence more than once, but she could seldom remember remember seeing someone who'd been as viciously beaten as this man and she reminded her stony eyes not to show her satisfaction it's like oh okay well that kind of gives you a hint what might be coming when aubrey gets pulled in front of the captain the hatch slid open and aubrey looked up anxiously as master at arms thomas appeared in the opening his face was his face was as expressionless as corporate slatterly's but he twitched his head commandingly, and Aubrey rose. He followed Thomas out into the passage and drew a deep breath as the hatch to the captain's quarters came into sight. The green-uniformed armsman guarding it turned his head to regard them levelly, then pressed the switch to open the hatch, and Aubrey marched up to stand before the captain's desk. Caps off, Thomas commanded, and Aubrey removed his beret, tucked it under his left arm, and snapped to parade ground attention. Charges, Lady Harrington asked the bosun in crisp official tone. Prisoners charged with violation of Article 36, fighting with a fellow crewman with aggravated circumstances, the bosun said, equally crispy. I see, the captain regarded Aubrey with stone-cold brown eyes. I added the word stone. The captain regarded Aubrey with cold brown eyes. That's a very serious offense, she said, and turned to look at Commander Cardones. Have you investigated the charge, Mr. Cardones? I have, Captain. I have examined all witnesses to the incident. All of them agree that the prisoner intentionally sought a confrontation with PowerTech Third Styleman, in the course of which they had words and the prisoner accused him of attempting to murder Senior Chief Petty Officer Lewis. A fight then ensued in which Styleman attempted to strike the first blow. Acting Petty Officer Wanderman defended himself, and in the fight that followed, systematically beat PowerTech Styleman, breaking his nose, cheekbone, several teeth, snapped at the gum line, and his kneecap, requiring reconstructive surgery. I take it those are the aggravated circumstances, the captain asked. Yes, ma'am, particularly the knee. All witnesses agree PowerTech Styleman had already been effectively incapacitated, and that the kick to the knee was deliberately intended to have the effect that it did. I see. The captain returned that basilisk gaze to Aubrey and leaned back in her chair. The tree cat on the perch above her desk also examined him, green eyes very intent and ears pricked and the captain lifted a finger at Aubrey. Did you, in fact, seek a confrontation with PowerTech Styleman? Yes, ma'am, I did, Aubrey replied as clearly as he could. Did you at any time use abusive or threatening language to him? No, ma'am, Aubrey said, then paused. Um... Well, except at the end, ma'am. I-, I did call him an asshole then, he admitted, flushing darkly. The captain's lips seemed to quiver for just a moment, and he told himself that he had to- it had to have been his imagination. I see. And did you intentionally break his nose, cheek, teeth, and knee? 
Most of it just happened, ma'am, except the knee. Aubrey stood very straight, gazing at a point five centimeters above her head. I, I guess I did do that on purpose, ma'am, he said quietly. I see, she said again, then glanced at the exec. Recommendations, Mr. Cardonis. That's a very serious admission, Captain, the commander said. We can't have our people going around breaking one another's bones deliberately. On the other hand, this is the first time the prisoner has ever been in trouble, so I suppose some leniency might be in order. The captain nodded thoughtfully and gazed at Aubrey for sixty awful seconds of silence. He made himself stand very still, waiting for her to pronounce his fate. The exec is correct, Wanderman, she said finally. Defending yourself against attack is one thing. Deliberately seeking a confrontation with a crewmate and then shattering his knee is something else again. Do you agree? Yes, ma'am, Audrey said manfully. I'm glad you do, Wanderman. I hope this will be a lesson for you and that you never again appear before me or any other captain on similar charges. She let that sink in, then fixed him with an unflinching gaze. Are you prepared to accept the consequences? Yes, ma'am, Audrey said again, and she nodded. Very well. For violation of Article 35 with aggravated circumstances, the prisoner is confined to quarters for one day and fined one week's pay. Dismissed. Aubrey blinked, and his eyes dropped to the captain's face in disbelief. Her face didn't even move a muscle when she returned his goggle-eyed stare, but there was a ghost of a twinkle in the eyes which had been so cold. He wondered if he was supposed to say something, but the master-at-arms came to his rescue. Prisoner! On caps! He barked. Aubrey's spine stiffened automatically as he replaced his beret. About face, Thomas snapped, and Aubrey turned and marched obediently out of the cabin to begin his confinement to quarters. I know that was a long one, but I had to give the whole thing. It was just, it it was great. And then they they bust up laughing after he's gone. Yep. (laughs) I don't know how realistic or unrealistic that was, but Dang, I loved, I, I, it was so much fun to read. <laughs> and after that, I am going to turn it over to you guys because I have talked long enough as far as uh, some closing thoughts and takeaways. Jim, you want to go first? All right. Uh, the story, once we get into it after the lengthy exposition, is another amazing story with characters that are believable as people. No, no one in here is superhuman, and there are some that appear subhuman in their behavior. There's both tragedy and triumph and the twists at the end. Mainly, the accounting of those lost in the final battle humbled me. I was sorry to see the list of familiar characters killed after all the character growth invested in them. Uh, One mechanical item I especially enjoyed was uh, how the story was put together. I could actually map out the author's thought process. Uh, It was an interesting exercise. It would be an interesting exercise to study the story structure and see the genius in the author's command of his craft. Uh, My takeaway, no matter how good or evil an entire group of people are made to seem in propaganda, societies are made up of individuals of all kinds. And not everyone is a monster when being led by a monster. Mm-hmm. So that right on. Yep, absolutely that right my on. Takeaway. And I'll pass that to you, JP. Well, um, once again, and like with the earlier novels, there's so much education happening through everything that Weber is putting on these pages. I love what he's doing with the series. 
anyone who wants to understand military culture needs to read these books. Um, certainly you're going to get a big dose of Navy, naval culture, but um, military in general too. So related, this question has been cooking in my mind for a few books now, and it tracks back to something I had said earlier about maybe convincing Mr. Weber to come on with us and answer questions. Um, who I want to ask him, who did he have in mind as the typical reader of these books? Was it just sci-fi fans, uh, military history fans, young members of the military? Any of these, all of these? At some point when we ask him to join us during a Q&A episode, that's one of the questions I want to throw down to him is when he started the whole series, who was he writing for? Outside of himself, right? I know how authors mm-hmm. have a story and they've got to find a way to tell it. But um, who who was his audience? That, those are kind of my afterthoughts, my takeaways. Well, that's a that's a real good one, JP. That's really, especially that second point. My my takeaway is more directly related to the story. You know, she might be a senior grade captain in the Manticore Navy, but she is so much more now at the same time. And like I said earlier, she's a power on on a at least regional galactic scale, whether she realizes it or not, whether she wants it or not. And at this point, it's not a matter of whether or not her star is rising. It's a matter of just how high is it going to rise. And the question that I found myself asking is, what is the price she's going to pay for that? Those kind of heights always come with a price. And I can't see Weber not being one to extract that price. But sum it up, that transition that began in Flag in Exile is complete now. And from there, let's get some ratings of uh, what you thought of these books. Uh, Jim, I'm going to start with you. All right. So (laughs) for the first third of the book, as I said, I was thinking like 2.5 and and 3. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, the uh, second part of that, the last 60% of the book pushed it up to a four. So that's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. All right. JP, you, sir. I'm going to throw down a 4.5 for this book. Okay. And JP, I am going to join you in that exact same score of a 4.5. Like, like I said, th- there's something about... It's a whole different aspect of naval warfare, and it, he's spending some time doing some world building and, and some plot yes. building in the first half in particular. So that that kind of kills back some of the excitement, but he still does a fantastic job in the storytelling and keeping that excitement going when, when it reaches the time that that needs to happen. So definitely 4.5 for me. Awesome. And it looks like Jim has done our math. And that comes out to what? A 4.33. 4.33 for the three of us. Uh, Goodreads reports 4.27. Essentially uh, the that same. Is, yeah. And that is with 17,323 ratings. Uh-huh. And Amazon has a 4.8 with 1,211 ratings. That, that sounds pretty reasonable, especially especially with Goodreads being a little harsher audience. Yeah. So there, you know, there we are. Yep. And so 
if you've been with us this this long, uh, stick with us another 30 seconds or so. Next time, we are reading In Enemy Hands, book number seven in the Honor Harrington series by David Weber. This will bring us to the halfway point of the series, and we will depart from the main sequence to explore more than honor, and that would be book number one in the Worlds of Honor anthology series. We would like to uh, send a special thanks and shout out to Hank Davis Yay, Hank. of the you bet of the TP Network of podcasts. Uh, get over there to his website and check it out. It's uh, it is a home of fun and informative podcasts. Yes, very much so. Well, on those happy notes, um, I think it's time for us to say goodbye. Oh yeah, so. I think we'll do that. Say goodnight, JP. Goodnight, JP. Oh, better far to live and die Under the brave black flag I fly Than play a sanctimonious part With a pirate head and a pirate heart Away to the cheating world go you Where pirates all are well to do but I'll be true to the song I sing And live and die A pirate king Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs.